I can honestly tell you this is not among my favorite chapters in the Bible. Along with similar teachings in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke, it's necessary, it's powerful, it's vital to our faith, but it is not among my favorite. It's hard to go through this. And I've been through it many, many times in my life, just reading through the story of the trials and the crucifixion and, and the, whole, the whole darkness of that night. So it's not really something that lends itself to a lot of laughter and messing around. But there is great depth here. And so we're going to pick up in verse 28. We left off in verse 27 last week. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. In fact, as verse 27 tells us, the rooster had just crowed. After Peter's third denial, the rooster crowed. Well, the rooster didn't crow because it knew that Peter was denying it crowed because it knew that it was morning. It's probably about 5 a.m. Through the night, Jesus had been through three volatile, thank you, Les, law violational tribunals violating Torah law, violating Jewish law. They were three Jewish trials, Annas and, and Caiaphas, and then finally before the Sanhedrin, that Jewish ruling body. Matthew 27, verse 1, tells us when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders and the people conferred together, the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put Him to death. They bound Him and led Him away and delivered Him to Pilate, the governor. And again, Mark chapter 15, verse 1 confirms it was early, early morning. Luke chapter 22 and 23 tells us the men holding Jesus were already in full swing. And I mean that literally. They were blindfolding him and mocking him and beating him with their fists and saying, Prophesy, who hit you? Who struck you? Luke refers to it as blasphemy. It could only be blasphemy if Jesus is God. But that's what Luke calls it. Meanwhile, the Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate, was already up about at the praetorium. That's not news to us. The uh, Romans were often up early. In fact, their typical modus operandi was up, sun up, and get work done as soon as possible, especially in places like Judea, where by the time you get to 11 or 12 o'clock, especially in the spring, summer, and early fall, it can get oppressively hot. So get the work done early. So Pontius Pilate probably wasn't dragged out of bed, if you've ever heard that taught. He was probably up and about his business already in the praetorium. A praetorium, that's from the, the Greek transliteration of the Latin word praetorion. And it literally was used to refer to a Roman general's tent in a Roman encampment. That's what it originally applied to. So if you wanted to find the general in the camp, you went to the praetorium. That was, that was his tent. It eventually became known as headquarters. And then for all the governors who would be spread out throughout the Pax Romana, it would be considered their residence or their palace. And they would sometimes take over a palace already there or sometimes it would be built. But Pontius Pilate is there in the Praetorium and the most likely site is Jerusalem or in Jerusalem, the most likely site for good reason loomed over the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. Antonia's Fortress. Now there are other sites that are suggested for the Praetorium, but it's the one that fits Scripture, I believe, the best. It was built by Herod. It was named for Mark Antony, the Fortress of Antonia. And it housed a substantial Roman garrison. Right there, on the grounds, or at the grounds, of the Temple Mount itself, the Jews hated it. Absolutely hated it. Because it just looked down upon their temple and the grounds there. They can look up from the temple courts and actually see the fortress of Antonia. That oppressive reminder that Rome had its foot on their neck. And there in the the praetorium, with that garrison of soldiers, Pilate made his home when he came to Jerusalem. But only when he came to Jerusalem. It was not his home the rest of the time. Pontius Pilate. 
Pontius Pilate, interesting character in the scriptures. You've all heard the name. Most people actually have. Although aside from the historians Tacitus, Josephus, and Philo, we had zero extra-biblical evidence of the existence of a man named Pontius Pilate at all, all the way until 1961. So for literally centuries... Nothing but a couple of Jewish historians and one Roman historian who made mention of this Pontius Pilate, but nowhere else, nothing else on earth, dug up, no papers, no nothing showing that this guy actually existed. But in 1961, while excavating at the ancient amphitheater in a place called Caesarea Maritima, which is Caesarea by the sea, the Italian archaeologist Dr. Antonio Frovo unearthed a limestone block bearing carvings on it and the name Pontius Pilatus Prefectus Judea. And so for the first time we had hardcore evidence of this man named Pilate beyond what the Bible told us. Well, it's no surprise to believers. It's no surprise to those of you who accept the authority of Scripture because you would say, well, yeah, we knew about that a long time ago. But it was finally discovered. Why in Caesarea? Of all places. Why not a, a pilot stone as they call it? Why not the pilot engraving in Jerusalem? Because Caesarea was the Roman governor's preferred praetorium. There was a great palace there. A palace that had been built by Herod. And there in the breezy fortress at Caesarea by the sea, that's where the Roman governors liked to stay throughout most of the year. They would only come to Jerusalem under duress. They hated Jerusalem. Much better to be in the cool Mediterranean retreat than the hotbed of religious fervor and all the possible problems that would come of the Jewish nationalism there. But the governors always came to town, Pilate and those before him, they always came to town town for the Jewish holidays, not because they had the holiday spirit, but they would come and take up residence there in the fortress of Antonia, the Praetorium of Jerusalem to keep an eye on things. The rebels, the rabble-rousers, the reprobates. They were always there looking to stir things up. They preyed on the religious, those poor religious people, those, you know, toting around their guns and Bibles and religion. Didn't know much. And the Romans looked down on the average people, but knew there were among the average people troublemakers. And so they would come with a fortified military presence. It was Passover week, the biggest week of the Jewish year. Jerusalem was packed out with millions, Josephus tells us. So Pilate was there. And I am certain that he had no idea that on this particular trip to Jerusalem, on this particular Passover, that he would come face to face with a king more mighty, more high, more glorious than Caesar could ever hope to be, the king of all eternity. Although he wouldn't really look like what you would expect. We're told that they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium and it was early and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. And if you were a Roman, you'd be like, how dare you? Well, you're calling me unclean? Really? We'd squash you guys like bugs if we wanted to. I mean, there was no love lost between the Jews and the Romans. None whatsoever. And here they stand outside of the fortress of Antonia, outside of the praetorium. They would not enter. Pilate knew they wouldn't. Well, it was was Passover. Couldn't go in there and defile themselves, render themselves unclean, and completely ruin their dinner reservations. So they stayed outside. And I find it interesting that not one of the Jewish leaders would enter, and yet one Jew did. He who would be their Passover. Jesus was always going places no one else would go. And as we've talked about in the authority of Christ, don't think for a moment that Jesus was dragged kicking and screaming into the praetorium. He went because that was the plan. He went because that's what He had determined ahead of time was needed. That's where He had to go. He went in there. 
Yes, he was bound, as we talked about Sunday, bound and determined to see this through. And so he was in there where no one else, no, no thinking Jew would go. Matthew 11 verse 19 tells us the Son of Man came eating and drinking, Jesus speaking. And they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's always with those sinners. He's always in those places that would defile. Jesus said, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. You know, I was thinking about this today and the fact that religion always fears defilement. A religious spirit is scared to death of the possibility that they might step out of line, that they might be defiled. But grace knows from whom salvation comes. Grace allows me to walk without fear, without worry, knowing that I am not defiled by the things of this world. I'm I'm defiled in the heart. But Jesus washed my heart clean. And by Jesus' grace, and by His grace alone, I am seen by the Father as righteous. But as much as religion fears defilement, religion shuns the unrighteous. Religion gets really uncomfortable when unrighteous things start to go on. How many of you parents were concerned about your junior hires last Wednesday night? When there was one naysayer among the group bringing up some sensitive topics. Are we going to allow that in this church? Are we going to allow people to walk in those doors who are not as righteous as we? (laughs) Actually, if that's the standard of righteousness, just about anybody could come in here, right? (laughs) Righteousness doesn't shun unrighteousness. You see, truth knows why we're clean. Grace knows from whom salvation comes. Truth knows why we are clean. And John 1.17 tells us grace and truth were realized in Jesus Christ. Jesus could go anywhere and not be defiled because He's Jesus. Because He is grace and He is truth. And when you are full of the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ, no location can defile you. Now that's not an invitation to the local bars. But it is a summons to take the message of grace and truth to the lost world. And the lost world is messed up. And the lost world is not always going to look right, not always going to act right, not always going to do right. Hey, we don't and we know the Lord. And sometimes the lost are going to wander into this place and they're not going to smell good and they're not going to look good and their lives are not going to be according to the Word. What are we going to do? We have a witness. We have a testimony of the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. Jesus went into the praetorium for God so loved the world. Jesus went into the praetorium, by the way, not just to fulfill this crucifixion that was impending, not just to be the Passover lamb. Jesus, I believe, went into the praetorium for Pilate's sake as much as anyone else's. Well, the Jews wouldn't go in, so Pilate comes out to them. Verse 29, Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and they said to him, Well, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves. Judge him according to your law. Well, according to their law, it was capital punishment. That was the judgment that Jesus deserved according to Jewish law if there was a certain degree of misunderstanding as to who He was. What do you mean, Rick? I mean back in Leviticus 24, verse 16. We're told, The one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall surely stone him. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. How in the world did Jesus come upon this sentence, this death sentence? Well, the only way you could blaspheme the name truly was to claim to be God. You claim to be God, that's blasphemy. And they had heard enough by this point. By the time they got Jesus to Pilate, they had heard enough to convict Him of their law of claiming to be God. 
But there's a little problem. Legally, it was legitimate. Legally, if they were to judge him according to their own law, they would just take him right outside the city gates and stone him to death. Problem was that Rome had removed that right. They didn't have the right to capital punishment. It had happened a couple decades earlier. In fact, you Bible students remember, on the day Rome rescinded the Jewish right to capital punishment, on the day Rome took away the scepter, as it were, on that very day we believe 12-year-old Jesus was wowing the priests in the temple. Why is that significant? Because Genesis 49.10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Old Jacob prophesied so long before, saying that you will have authority, you will have rule and reign over yourselves, you'll have some degree of that And the scepter will not be taken away until Shiloh comes. Well, the rabbis, the priests in Jerusalem on the day, weeped, they mourned, because when Rome took away the right of capital punishment from their hands, it was like Rome taking away the scepter, and those Bible students among the Jews said, that's it, the prophecy is now unfulfilled. And yet Jesus was already there. Now, some of you have asked the question. Okay, it was Spencer. You've asked the question. (laughs) I know, right? You just show up and you get... Anyway. No, a very good question. Pilate says to them, take him and judge him according to your own law. And they said, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. Well, that's a problem. We're not allowed to do this. Our law says stone him to death, but you have taken away that right, so we can't do it. Otherwise, Jesus would have been stoned to death, not crucified. You know, it's funny, that didn't stop the Jews from picking up stones to stone him during his ministry. They weren't asking Pilate for permission back then. John chapter 10, verse 31, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus answered and said to them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which one of them are you stoning me? Just trying to, you know, dot our I's and cross our T's here. The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Now get that, my friends, because the enemies of Christ knew exactly what he was saying about himself. And they weren't going to tolerate it. In addition to this, not long after the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of Jesus... They did pull off a stoning, didn't they? Right outside the city of Jerusalem by a disciple of Jesus, a man by the name of Stephen, who was stoned to death. We'll read the story when we get to Acts chapter 7. Stoned to death. You see, when it was expedient, Rome could look the other way. No, you don't have the right to capital punishment. We really don't want to deal with you Jews today, so whatever, do your thing. And they looked the other way. They did with Stephen. No one got busted for the stoning of Stephen. And that's probably why Pilate came out and said, Judge him according to your law. After all, what's one Jew killing another? What's the loss of another Jew? Go ahead, judge him. So why then do the Jewish leaders here press Pilate on the matter? Why didn't they just do it? You know, get it done. Political cowardice, I think. I mean, the last thing they needed was for the populace who loved this Messiah figure to see his blood on their hands. If they could get Rome to do it, Rome crucifying another Jew, well, that would just, that would just increase the support that the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, had over the Jewish people. So political cowardice. But verse 32 gives us the fuller picture as we have already read to fulfill the word of which of Jesus which he spoke signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. So more than political cowardice the reality is it was by his own prophetic authority that Jesus had already decreed the method of his execution. He had already stated it loud and clear. John 12, 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And John says, and he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. 
We talked about this Sunday as well, but this had been prophesied a thousand years before by David, Psalm 22, 16, that he would be pierced through. Uh, By Isaiah, 700 years before, Isaiah 53, verse 5, that he would be pierced through. Another place I didn't mention on Sunday, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, which reads, they will look on me whom they have pierced, not whom they have stoned. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Jesus had to be crucified. This was written in stone. This was set out long beforehand. He must be crucified. Messiah would not be stoned down. He would be lifted up. He would be humbled yet glorified. And this truth out there... there There really wasn't any other option. Why? Why did it have to be crucifixion? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, why couldn't it have been stoning? Or why couldn't it have been, I don't know, lethal injection or something a little easier? Why crucifixion? Going back to Deuteronomy 21 in the Jewish law, we're told if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree. His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he, listen, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. You don't hang anybody unless they are a cursed person. By the way, Jesus didn't hang all night on the tree of Calvary, did He? He was only up there six hours. In complete fulfillment of Jewish law, He had to be hung on a tree. Why? What Jesus did was bear on the cross every sin worthy of death, which includes the very curse of sin itself. Jesus on the cross didn't just bear our sins, gang. He was a cursed man. He had to be hung on a tree. And so you have two angles of prophecy taken care of, that He would be pierced and that He must be hung on the tree to bear the curse of all the sin of all mankind. God took care of that. It had to be death by piercing, hung up on a tree. Paul the Apostle says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. There is so much, as much as I don't like studying and reading and thinking about the crucifixion, there is so much wrapped up in what He did on the cross. It is absolutely mind and spirit boggling. That on the cross of Calvary, yes, He took away our sins. Yes, on the cross of Calvary, He took the curse of sin. But on the cross of Calvary, He hung on that tree cursed so that we would receive the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul just said. We receive the Spirit through faith. We trust in Him. We believe in Him because He was lifted up. He has drawn us to Himself. Verse 33, Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to Him, Are you the King of the Jews? I love the answer. Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Now, understand the heart of Jesus. He's not messing with Pilate. And yes, he immediately takes control of the conversation. He is the one in authority after all. But he's not just playing games here. When he asks the question, he's saying literally, are you asking me that question as part of a legal inquiry or do you really want to know personally? Are you asking me this for you, Pilate? Because I'll tell you, man. I'll let you know exactly what's going on. Jesus controls the conversation. He sets Pilate back on his heels. He turns the judicial proceeding into a Billy Graham crusade for one man. Do you want to know? Are you asking for yourself? And I absolutely believe Jesus does this out of love for and concern for Pilate. The man who earthly authority would consider had the power to kill him. Of course, we know that's not true. 
He has no power except what was given to him, and we'll get there in just a minute. Jesus already knew the answer to the question when he said, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Jesus knew what Pilate was going to what he was going to say. Jesus knew what the response was going to be. And some might say, well, it's kind of futile for Jesus to ask that question, knowing Pilate's going to blow him off. Why would he ask it in the first place? Because Jesus needed Pilate to answer the question for Pilate. He's asking the question, and gang, this is what he does. He gives everybody every opportunity to check our own hearts. He knows who's going to accept him and who's going to reject him. He already knows. When he comes to you, when he comes to another person and says, Will you receive me? Will you receive my grace? He knows if they're going to reject him. So why ask? Because they need to hear it. They need to make the decision. We need to respond to the question and check our own hearts. Well, Pilate's heart immediately emerges. Verse 35, Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? And in that moment, Pilate was on trial. The trial of the heart. This has nothing to do with me, he says. This is an internal Jewish issue. I could care less. And yet, as I said, it is the question we must all answer. Do you see Jesus as king or not? Do you accept His authority over your life or not? I know I spent over an hour on this on Sunday morning. But there is so much of this that we miss in our daily little decisions. Does He have authority over me? Authority over what I post on Facebook. Does He have authority over that? Or is that your private realm? Authority over what I text someone I might dislike. Authority over the hand signals I use while driving. Does he have authority? Authority over my life decisions. Well, I don't know if this is pleasing pleasing to Jesus or not, but I kind of like it. Does he have authority? We we had to answer that question. All of us, I run into it daily. Am I under his authority in this decision? Or am I functioning on my own authority? We gotta own him as king. We gotta accept him as king, receive him as absolute authority of our lives. That's, that's what he invites us to, calls us to. Well, verse 36, Pilate after lashing back out at Jesus, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. One sentence, and all the air is let out of the sails. Everything would calm down right there. This is not an insurgency issue. My kingdom's not of this world, he says. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Now, we need to understand this. Jesus is, first of all, he's not denying a future kingdom on planet Earth. If you've ever been given this verse by someone to say, well, see, Jesus said my kingdom's not of this world, therefore he's not going to come back and rule and reign out of Jerusalem. That's just wrong. Because he said my kingdom's not of this realm. Not of this world. Well, that's a complete misunderstanding of what he's saying. Primarily because the vast weight, the mountain of evidence in Scripture says otherwise, clearly laid out in Hebrew prophecy, clearly laid out in Revelation 20, six times we're told of the thousand year reign of Christ. And not even a hint of metaphor. So he's not, he's not saying, he's not denying a future coming of an earthly kingdom. What he is saying here is that his kingdom is bigger than any time frame. You know, the kingdom is bigger than the thousand-year reign. The thousand-year reign is just part of it. The kingdom's already underway. The thousand-year reign kicks it into high gear, but it's going to continue right on into eternity from there. My kingdom is not of this realm. My kingdom's not of this world, he says. It's bigger than you're thinking. What he's saying... And it's probably far more than I'm going to give you tonight. So it's something to think about and pray over and look at this verse on your own. But a couple of things. He's saying Christianity is not temporal. 
My kingdom is not a temporary thing. It's not like Rome. The reason why Jesus was no threat to Rome is His kingdom was not like Rome. Not in the least. Every nation, every empire, every kingdom comes and goes. Americans, why do we think we're any different? Every kingdom comes and goes. Every nation has a start and an end point with the one exception of Israel, which I find interesting. Every kingdom is going to see demise. This kingdom, Jesus says, my kingdom is not like that. My kingdom will not end. His kingdom, by the way, this is interesting, His kingdom is not based on land holdings like Islam. Islam is based on hanging on to land. This is something that people don't get, especially outside the church, but even inside sometimes, among Christians, we don't understand this fully, but the world does not know what to do with the church. They just don't know what to do. They didn't know what to do when we went to meet with them about the whole barn issue. Well, you can't meet it if a church can't meet in a barn. I'm like, okay, dude, if two Christians show up and run into each other in a barn, the church is meeting in a barn. They didn't understand that. <laughs> We're talking about the corporate church. And I'm like, so am I. <laughs> but you can't meet on private property. So you're telling me that every small group in the entire Skagit and Island County area is in violation of the law. Because see, the church is meeting in private properties all over the place all the time. You're telling me if I have a Christian brother or sister over to dinner that I can't do that? Hey, that's the church. The church is not what people think. The church is not marching to take land. The church is not out there with a political agenda. That's not the church. The church is not temporal. Which is a wonderful statement because the reality is Christianity will never end. Those who say Christianity will die within a decade, most of them are dead. In less than a decade. And it's why other religions and national interests have such a hard time categorizing Christians because the kingdom is not temporal. Not like all other organizations, this one is unique. Daniel 2.21, Daniel said, speaking of the Lord, He removes kings and establishes kings. That's His prerogative. Whether it's Bush or Obama, or Clinton or Bush, or Rubio, or Bernie, what's his name? God's, you know, did you realize God's going to determine the next president of the United States? Should we be here that long? I kind of hope we're not. But he is going to make that determination. So I shouldn't vote? I didn't say that. We should be engaged in the process. But it's up to the Lord, and He's going to give us, sometimes He gives us exactly what we ask for. Daniel 2.44, Daniel said, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Christianity is not temporal. What's different about this kingdom is that it depends solely on the king, not on the institution. Let me say that again. It depends on the king, not on the institution. Which is why when Christianity institutionalizes and denominationalizes, we get into trouble. When we get hardened into a way of doing things, guess what? That's not the kingdom. The kingdom is based on the presence of the king. It's based on the person of the king. Jesus said in John 14, 19, After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. Christianity is not temporal. He says in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Christianity is not temporal. It's not an institution. It's about the individual. It's about Jesus, who is the same yesterday and today and forever, Hebrews 13.8. Christianity is not temporal. Who do you hang your hopes on? Or what? There are Christians in the world who hang their hopes on their church. Who are going to show up before the Lord and say... I was a member for 40 years at such and such church in such and such town. And the Lord's going to say, 
That's not what this is about. Did you know me? In fact, his own words depart from me. I never knew you. Because it's about the king. What do you hang your hopes on? Who do you put your trust in? For me, when I first met Cheryl, it was her. (laughs) You know, she is my everything. Now, I love my wife, but she ain't my everything, gang. Jesus is my everything. The Lord could take my wife. I could be with I'm, I'm without her for three three days right now. I've told you this before. When she's gone, I'm just I'm no good on my own. Except that Jesus is here. Who do you hang your hopes on? First Peter two six says this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. That means whatever the outcome of elections are. He who believes in Him will not be disappointed. That means whatever happens in your family life, He who believes in Him will not be disappointed. Who do you hang your hopes on? So, Jesus is saying, Pilate, if you're asking me if I'm a threat to Rome, you can chill. That's not what this is about. It is far greater than the age of Rome. Christianity is not temporal. But there's something else that we really need to learn. I'm already hinting at it. Not only is Christianity not temporal, but hold on to your hats, Christianity is not political. Now, I didn't say that Christians can't be involved in the political process, so don't misunderstand me. What I'm saying is Christianity in and of itself is intrinsically not a political institution. And if you want to know what my personal politics are, see me afterwards. I'll talk to you about it. But that is not why we're here. He doesn't do things this way. What way? Politically. Jesus does not function politically. When He says, My kingdom is not of this realm. Now check this out. Because I can prove exactly what I'm saying. My kingdom is not of this realm, He says. The King James translation, He says to Pilate, My kingdom is not from hence. From hence? What are you saying? The phrase, of this realm... My kingdom is not of this realm. It's a single word in the Greek. It's entuthen. Not easy to say. Entuthen. And it literally means, if we translate it exactly by its intent, it literally means on this side and that side. My kingdom is not on this side or that side. My kingdom is not one that is taking up sides. It's not on one hand or the other. Let me give you an example. The other place this word entuthen is used in the Greek, Revelation 22, verse 2, which says, on either side of the river was the tree of life. On entuthen was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, which means that kids were right when we fell off our bikes and we ran to get leaves for healing. You know, that's, that's why. On one side or the other of the river, in Chuthan. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of one side or the other. Okay, what does that mean? Ask Joshua. Joshua knew exactly what this meant. I'm not going to read it right now. I'll just tell you the story. Joshua chapter 5. Joshua goes out. They're about to go to battle. It's the whole Jericho scene. They're outside of Jericho. Joshua is out, no doubt praying, no doubt considering this with the Lord. And all of a sudden, someone shows up. A man bearing a sword. A powerful man. And one that Joshua, by his recognition, knows there's something different here. Something amazing. And in this scenario, Joshua walks up to him and says, Are you on our side or the other? And the man's answer? No. No. I am the captain of the Lord's host. Take off your shoes, Joshi. You are standing on holy ground. Now the only other person who ever said that was God. So who is this standing here, the captain of the host, sword drawn, who says, take off your shoes, you are on holy ground? I believe none other than Jesus Christ. 
in a pre-incarnate appearance on the earth. There in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Read the story, it's marvelous. But listen, Joshua says, whose side are you on? And Jesus says, the captain of the Lord's host says, I'm not on his side. I'm on my side. There's really only one side that counts, and that's the side of the Lord. The question is never, please understand, it's never, Lord, are you on my side? The question is always, are we on His? Lord, are you Democrat or Republican? Some of you, I'm sure, have an opinion about that. Or are you independent? He's not any of that. He's on His side. And the question is, are we going to align with Him? Because we're not going to, you know, politicize the church into Him aligning with us. He's not going to one day go, okay, if I have to give a vote, I'm going to vote for, you know. You know who God voted for in the last election? Obama. (gasps) How can you say that, Rick? The conservative would ask, and I reply, because Obama's president. And he's the one who sets up and deposes emperors and kings and rulers. So... He's the one who set up Saul. Why? Because that's what the people wanted. So he gave them what they wanted. And it was a disaster. A train wreck. I'm not going to make application right now. <laughs> when Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this realm, the whole concept of political insurgency goes out the door. He's no threat to Pilate's precious Rome. Jesus declares a kingdom far beyond the realm of human possibility, ingenuity, or capability. He's on his own side. And the question is, are we going to join him there? And note that he says this, my servants, if... If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. Well, guess what? The servants of Jesus Christ don't fight to win temporary skirmishes. The bondservants of Jesus Christ don't wage battles for political victory. We are not an ideological voting block. Who's going to get the evangelical vote? I hate that. We're not a voting block. I'm praying the will of the Lord. And yeah, I will cast a vote should that day come. But we're not a voting block. We're the church, man. And Christianity is not temporal and Christianity is not political. Well, then what are we supposed to do? Jesus is not asking us to fight as soldiers or debate as politicians. He's asking us to testify as witnesses. That's what we're supposed to be about. Not what party wins. Not establishing the bridge fellowship and then the bridge south end and then the bridge northeast and then the bridge, you know, as we cookie cut our way across the nation. That's that's not what we're about. We are about being witnesses who testify of Jesus. As Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He says, I charge you in the presence of God. Now when someone says that, pay attention. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Paul reaches back to this scene and he says, remember what Jesus testified. What's that? My kingdom is not of this realm. That is not the way I do things. And my testimony is of a greater kingdom, one that is far beyond the realm of this world. Verse 37. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You said it. You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. And for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. You see, Jesus' very presence in the world was a testimony to the truth that He was born to be king. He's not just, you know, like the Lion King. He just can't wait to be king. He was born to be king. He is king intrinsically, innately, inherently. It's who He is. And His presence on earth testified of that truth. 
And remember, Jesus said, I am the truth. And so, it's all about coming under His authority, for the truth is, He was born to be your King and mine. Isaiah 9, 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on His shoulders, and His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish that. And in two verses we just learned that Christianity is not political and it's not temporal. The kingdom is far bigger And Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. That's good to know. It's good to know as a pastor teacher. Because it takes all the pressure off me when I'm teaching the Word of God. Everyone who's of the truth is going to hear Jesus' voice. You may not hear my voice, you may sleep through my voice, but if you are of the truth, you will hear His voice. It gives me great peace as a parent. I have three of my six are 18 and over now. Three of my six are in the place where I'm realizing they've got to own it. I'm just about ready to let Hannah go. Not quite. (laughs) Corey's 25 years old this week. I I have a quarter century child. And he told me, Dad, I think it's about time for my quarter-life crisis. I thought that was funny. (laughs) So Corey's out there in college. Hannah's off, married. Hayden's 18, graduated high school. But I look at those three, and then I've got Anna Marie, Naomi, and David, younger, coming up fast. And the illusion of parental control is slipping away. (laughs) And I am realizing that with my three older ones... It's time for them to own it or not. And I can't control that. Do I want to, fellow parents? (laughs) You bet I do. Do I want to take full weight and authority? Do I want to will my faith into theirs? Yes, I do. Cheryl will tell you. There have been so many times in our life where I've just tried to will something to happen. And when they're little, that's easy. Get in the car. You know, all you got to do is widen the eyes. It's funny, with David and Naomi, that's all I need to do. I mean, they, they've rarely ever been punished because I just go... <laughs> but as a parent, I have great peace in knowing that if you desire truth, if you hunger for truth, if you will honestly seek for truth, guess what? You'll get it. You'll get it. My kids will get it if they want it. If they don't want it, they're not going to get it. And no amount of my hoping and pushing and cajoling will make any difference. You know what will make a difference in my kids who are out of the house and older? Less what will make the difference? What's the one thing I can still do for my kids right now? I can pray. And pray I do. I can intercede. And that's where the power is. But beyond that, i got to know, as Jesus said, Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. But remember, truth is never a construct. And, and this especially to you parents like me with kids still at home. Truth is not a construct. Truth is not an ideology. Truth is not a hypothesis. It is not a thought. Truth is a person. And I wish I had known this when my oldest were little kids. Because I would have taught them differently than I did for many years. I'm telling them now, man. And I'm telling my littlest, David, right now, truth is Jesus. And you got to know Jesus. And it's all about being in a relationship with Jesus. He's the deal. It's not about making church people happy. I don't care if you're a pastor's kid. You want to upset a church person, whatever. It is about Jesus. Because truth is a person, not an ideology. Verse 38. Pilate said to him, What is truth? The ancient postmodernist. 
What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews. And he said to them, I find no guilt in him. Pilate just walked out on the truth. And I find that interesting. So many others after him have done the same thing. You know Jesus is faultless. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent, but he cannot see the truth. His heart won't let him receive the truth. Jesus gave him the offer. And he wouldn't take it. So he turns. He walks out on the truth. Truth as a person whom he cannot see. And he says to them in verse 39, But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. The last robber that John mentioned was Judas. So this is really not a good description of someone. Barabbas. bar Abbas, son of the father. That's what Barabbas' name means. Early church tradition holds that Barabbas' first name was Yeshua. Jesus, son of the father. Yeshua Barabbas. Interesting. Because here on this weekend we have two Jesus, Son of the Fathers. Two of them. Which one do you want released? Pilate asks, and it's a good question. Which one do you want released in your life? The rabbi or the robber? Do you want the murderer? We're told by Luke, he was a murderer. Do you want the murderer or the Messiah? I mean, the truth is that clear cut. Shall I give you Jesus the Messiah, King of the Jews, or shall I give you Barabbas, the insurrectionist, murderer, and thief? Which one do you want? And the Jewish people in that moment, so intense was their fear and hatred, the leadership at least of Jesus, was they cried out, Give us Barabbas! We want the robber! We want the murderer! We want the Antichrist! What are you talking about, Rick? The Antichrist. You know what Antichrist just means? It means another Christ. It doesn't mean against Christ. It means another Christ. One who would be in place of Christ. And the Jews had the opportunity right there. Choose Christ or choose another. And they chose another. And so... So we see an amazing tragedy that began to unfold and has been unfolding among the people of Israel for 2,000 years. Because they chose the murderer. And they chose the thief as opposed to the Messiah, the true Son of God. It is always tragic when people accept a false son over the true, the one and only true Son. And Jesus said it would happen. John 5.43, He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. And just as they received Barabbas, So they will receive Antichrist when he comes. A false son, Barabbas, the murderer, the robber. And the question isn't, it isn't who do you want released. The real question is, who can release you? Can the thief, the murderer, can he release you? Or can the Son of God, Jesus? A little bit further, let's press into chapter 19 just a bit. Verse 1, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged Him. I'm not even going to get into the description. Most of you know that cat of nine tails. You know what that's all about. It was brutal. And it was intended to completely break down the person. And so he had Him scourged. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on His head and put a purple robe on him and they began to come up to him and say hail king of the Jews and to give him slaps in the face what the scourge was to the back the game of kings or the basilinda as it was called was to the countenance of a person 
What the scourge was to the back, the scourge tore you up. By, they say, about the 10th or 11th or 12th strike of the scourge, you could literally see the internal organs of the person. That's how much it just carved up a person's back. But the game of the king had the same impact on the spirit, on the countenance of the person who was being tried. It was a game designed to absolutely humiliate and demean The game of the king. The condemned was given a robe and a makeshift crown, in this case one of thorns, and a phony scepter. And the Roman guard would take turns playing a game. They would pay homage to the king. They would call him the king. They would take sheep's knuckles dried up to use for dice. And they would roll them on carvings in the stone floor. And based on where they landed among the carvings, they would move forward or back. It was a board game. For the Roman garrison, they would gamble over the possessions, the vicarious possessions, because most of the criminals didn't have any possessions there, so they would pretend as though they did a wife, a house, some kind of financial holdings, and they would gamble for them, and the winner of the game got the right to kill the king. And again, not in actuality, but as part of the game. And by the way, this is why I lean toward the Antonia Fortress as the most likely location of the Praetorium because there remains on the floor of the Antonia Fortress today, etched in the first century stone pavement, the Game of Kings. You can actually see it there. The markings left by the Romans from 2,000 years ago. They played this game. That's what John is describing in verses 1 through 3. After the scourging, the crown of thorns pressed down on his brow as the blood would drip down and the purple robe put on his back that was like hamburger. Think about when you put on a a t-shirt after getting sunburned and magnify that by a million. And they would put the purple robe on him and and play this game. Verse 4, Pilate came out again to them and said, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Behold the man. Now in Pilate's phraseology in his language, he is he's demeaning Jesus. He figures if he can demean Jesus enough, maybe they'll have a little bit of you know compassion and let him go. He's playing a very difficult game here because Pilate knows this man is innocent. He says it twice. I find no guilt in this man. Two times Pilate comes out and says that. <laughs> There's no reason to do this, he says. And they keep crying for blood. Jesus comes out with a crown of thorns, either from the date palm or the acacia. We don't know which one. If it's from the acacia tree, which is a very thorny, sharp thorny tree, a desert tree, it's interesting because the acacia wood was also the wood used for the Ark of the Covenant. If it was the date palm, we're talking about thorns that could be as, as, as large as 8 to 12 inches. Big, sharp thorns that would stick out. Not not like the little, you know, we have those little representations you can buy in a Christian bookstore. Kind of nice little crown of thorns. I mean, it, it doesn't look nice. It looks painful, but this was far worse. This would have been huge. Thorns sticking out this far. Crammed down on his head. And he comes out wearing that. What was the resulting curse of Adam's sin. Genesis chapter 3 verse 17, God said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. Do you think the Lord knew when He cursed Adam? Do you think He knew that one day thorns would dig into His own brow? Of course He did. Absolutely he did. But Pilate, for his part, is trying to get Jesus set free. 
He thinks again, if he can demean Jesus enough, he'll remove the threat and it'll all be cool and they just let him go. Beaten up and, and, you know, bedraggled, but at least alive. I don't find any guilt in this man. Isaiah 52 verse 13 says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And that describes Jesus here. Purple robe, phony scepter, crown of thorns, but beaten beyond recognition. Marred more than any of the sons of men. You would look at this, this beaten man. Who wouldn't have compassion for someone in that state? And people still do that today, by the way. They mar the appearance of Jesus. They denigrate Him. They demean Him. They undermine Him. And some do it thinking, maybe, you know, people will just leave me well enough alone. You know that even happens, and I hate to say it, but I think it's true in the church. Some churches that diminish Jesus because they just don't want to get into it. They diminish His authority because they just don't want the world thinking badly of them. They demean His grandeur because they want to make sure people come in the door and don't feel judged. And in so doing, they mar His appearance. My friends, that never works. It just makes the enemy smell blood. When you cave in, when you give in, when we say, okay, we'll stand on most truth, but just not those truths that offend people in our community. Hey, then guess what? We're going we're gonna to drop truth after truth after truth until ultimately there's nothing left. Marring Jesus doesn't work. Pilate shows us that. He's trying to release Jesus. I find no guilt. He says, behold the man. Look at this guy. And it was intended to show how pathetic and beaten Jesus was, but greater than the human intentions of Pilate or the divine inspiration of God, Zechariah 6.12, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man. Pilate says the same thing Zechariah the prophet says, Behold the man, Zechariah says, whose name is Branch. For he will branch out from where he is. He will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices, the office of priest and the office of king. He will bear both. This one called branch, Zechariah says, Behold the man. And Pilate quotes him and says, Behold the man. Why? Same man. Same man. Verse 6. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. And there it is. That is the reason for the Gospel of John. Because he made himself out to be, his enemies said, the Son of God. And the Jews in opposition to Jesus declare the real reason they want him killed. And it's the point of the entire Gospel, Jesus claimed to be God. I know I've said that over and over, I just want to make sure nobody misses it. John is absolutely clear. Page after page, verse after verse, chapter for chapter, John brings out the truth. Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be eternal King. You cannot take Him any other way. He either is or He isn't. He's not just the good teacher. He's not just the interesting philosopher. He's not just that man who achieved a higher plane of of ability and power than anyone can do. He came as God in the flesh, and you either see Him that way or you reject Him altogether. You cannot have it halfway. It's the King. He's the King, and this is His kingdom that we're dealing with here. And I don't mean in tonight's Bible study. I mean in our lives, we are dealing with with the King of Eternity. 
we're dealing with the kingdom that is eternal. I mean, we need to every now and then stop and recognize how big that is, how huge. I mean, that, that, that's worth everything. He's the king. During his ministry, he said in Matthew 12, 28, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. After the fact, after the resurrection, we're told in Acts 1, verse 3, to these, that is his disciples, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning, listen, the kingdom of God. And the Hebrew writer says, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And Jesus Himself said, as we saw on Sunday, Fear not, little flock, for your Father is pleased to give you a kingdom. That's the reality of what we're involved with in the church. The kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Holy Father, when I stop my silly little life, when I pause long enough to hear You declare Yourself King, when I wait before You for just enough time to recognize that I'm part of a kingdom that goes on forever, Father, it overwhelms me. And I can truly say for all the friends and family and love that I have in this world, there is nothing, nothing that compares to my King Jesus and Lord, your kingdom. We know the end is near. We know the result of what you are doing. We know the zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to accomplish all of this. And so we come under Your authority again tonight, stopping again in our lives to recognize Your Lordship and Your greatness. And I say to You, Lord Jesus, be my King. Take authority over every aspect of my life. And if there is something, Lord, that I'm clinging to, I'm holding on to, I'm making about me, pry my fingers loose, Lord that I might bow wholly submitted to You as King. In Jesus' name, Amen.